This episode does come with a trigger warning as it does discuss executions and deaths of enslaved people. Welcome to the Noya Caribbean podcast. This podcast is dedicated to bringing to life Caribbean history and culture from our Indo-Caribbean experience, the lives of our indigenous people, the Arawak, Kalinago, Taino, and more, our African heritage, and of course, our gangster stories of resistance and rebellion in the Caribbean, throwing in the history of our music, food, and cultural practices. The more we know our history, the more we know ourselves. So get to know yourself through Know Your Caribbean, the Know Your Caribbean podcast. Welcome back, folks, to the Know Your Caribbean podcast. To our new listeners, welcome, bienvenidos. And this episode, we are going to be talking about resistance and rebellion in the Caribbean region, okay? And it's one of my, I'm going to be covering one of my favorite books in life. And it's talking about Suriname, which is part of the Caribbean. It is in South America next to Guyana and is often overlooked, but it is one of the epicenters of Afro-Caribbean resistance and rebellion against enslavement. And just by chance, through falling down my rabbit hole of just reading, I came across this book, which is called The Expedition to Suriname. This is the entire title of the book, okay? Long. Expedition to Suriname. Being the narrative of five years' expedition against the revolted Negroes in Suriname in Guyana, on the wild coast of South America from the year 1772 to 1777. It continues on, but it's it's a long title, but it is one of the most fantastic books I've ever read. It's written by a white man. His name is John Steadman. But the reason why I say that the book is incredible because growing up in the Caribbean, we never got taught stories in this kind of intricacy. Any stories of resistance was very much glossed over or condensed or dismissed or not told at all and to find an entire book that speaks in such detail about African resistance black resistance in the Caribbean was absolutely illuminating for me and we're going to talk about the story of the Maroons in Suriname. Suriname contains the largest community of undiluted African blood in the entire Western Hemisphere. And that is to do because of the Maroons and their gangster shit. So we're going to talk about Suriname and the Maroons in this episode and just kind of talk about the intricacies of this story. So one of the things I wanted to touch on is within this book that John Stedman writes. Now, one thing of the things that I have to say is that he has two books. He has his diary and his narrative. And his narrative is a very romanticized and version of the story. But even within the romance, there is a lot of truths, a lot of insight. Um, it's romanticized from a white man's perspective. But a lot of the times when I read books, I don't look at the white man's romance. I will see a lot of other gangster shit. So, alongside with us today, we have your favorite chocolate voice, yeah, son yeah. of the African soil. Yes, 100%. And he's in the house. Pure Ghana. 
Coco. Yes, the Ghana mm-hmm. Coco is here in the house. Yes, I'm here. All right, welcome back. Thank you. Okay, so before I start painting a story about the Maroons in Suriname, I wanted to paint a story about Suriname in its essence, okay? Mm-hmm. So Suriname was part of the Dutch Empire and they had about 275,000 enslaved on various plantations. And I think it's about 900 plantations. Now, Suriname is extremely wet. Okay, so it has a lot of water, a lot of rivers. There's a huge river that runs through it that weaves and bends and has loads of forests. And it's actually one of the most forested countries in the world up to today. So this is one of the things why um, it was beneficial for the Maroons and why their community grew in such fullness. So... I remember growing up in the Caribbean, they would say that the Dutch were the most brutal slave owners um, of all the Europeans in terms of the how dynamic their punishments or modes of torture were. It's interesting because a lot of people don't know that. You don't hear about that at all? No, it's just the English mm-hmm. or the Spanish mm-hmm. or the French. And Portuguese. And Portuguese. Mm-hmm. The Dutch are like... Mm-hmm. They just kind of like, yeah. you know, they like they like Homer. You know that gif of Homer, mm-hmm. like when he's going back into the hedge or he's hiding in the hedge. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's them. That's, that's and now everybody likes. Oh, I love Amsterdam. <laughs> I could go and smoke my yeah in Amsterdam. It, it's, it's seen as like one of the blackest cities because it has a weed culture. It, yeah, exactly. But no one talks about their involve, their involvement. Oh, yeah, the involvement was hard. And the brutality of it. Well, you know, the thing is, is that in terms of measurements of brutality, they were for sure. I mean, English were very good with psychological warfare. Yeah. But, you know, the Dutch were extremely physically brutal slave masters. So what I'm going to do is just give you guys a bit of a reading from a few excerpts from this book. And I'm going to start here. So John Stedman starts in his chapter five of the book and says this. So Zelandia, where all criminals are imprisoned and all field officers are buried. At this place, I was not a little shocked to see the captive rebel Negroes and others clanking their change and roasting plantain and yam upon the sepulchres. I don't even know. What I don't even know what that would mean either. The sepulchres of the dead. Well, I'm assuming it's like over the mounds or the, the the resting grounds of the mm-hmm. dead. So they were roasting yam and plantain on top of like dead bodies, pretty much. They presented to my imagination the image of a number of diabolical fiends in the shape of African slaves tormenting the souls of the European persecutors. Interesting. From these gloomy mansions of despair on this day, seven captive Negroes were selected, who being led by soldiers to the place of execution which is the savannah, where the sailors and soldiers are interred. Six were hanged and one was broken alive on the rack on the iron bar. So I have discussed a little bit about breaking on on the wheel, on the rack in previous episodes. But for the first time listeners, it is one of the most excruciating and horrible methods of torture and execution developed by the Europeans, wherein which you are placed uh, almost spread eagle on a wheel, or a rack and you're tied your hands and feet and you every single bone is broken in your body 
moving inwards then after that then you would be whipped or stabbed or your head would be cut off but it was a very slow method of execution so it continues to say besides which a white man was scourged before the courthouse by a public executioner who is in this country always a black the circumstance which led me to take particular notice of this affair was a shameful injustice of showing partiality to the European who ought to have been better informed by letting him escape with only a slight corporal punishment while the poor, uneducated African for the same crime, stealing money out of the town hall, lost his life under the most excruciating torments, which he supported without heaving a sigh or making a complaint. And that's one of the things that I noticed through reading this book is when they had these very horrible executions, John Sedman always noted that they would never say a word. They would be executed in the most painful ways. And just before, you know, death or even during the, the, the torturous, you know, methods, he always said they never said anything, never said a word, never made a noise, never did anything. And so he says, hey, without heaving a sigh or making a complaint, one of his companions with a rope about his neck, just on the point of being turned off, uttered a laugh of contempt at the magistrates who attended the execution. I ought not in this place to admit that the Negro who flogged the white man inflicted the punishment with the greatest marks of commiseration. These transactions almost induced me to decide between the Europeans and Africans in this colony that the first were the greater barbarians of the two. So that was an introduction to John Selman's perspective. I mean, this is just a couple of paragraphs, but I mean, what did you think of, what did you gather from that? It just goes back to the same, you know, black man doing the white man's bidding. Yes. As always, you know, they will make you, you know, the chief or the class prefect of the slaves where you inflict the pain. They don't. They never do anything themselves. They never do anything themselves. But he was saying that the black man was doing it with commiseration, like he felt sorry for the white man. In a in a way, because you probably I don't know because you know it, it's almost like you when you know someone can't inflict that. If the roles were reversed, yes, I think white people would be extinct. Yes, they would. But you know, I mean, with the level of pain. That you would have to that they've witnessed being inflicted on their their peers. Mm-hmm. If you inflicted the same amount of pain on a white person, they would, they can't handle that. The thing is, is that John Stedman recognized. He said, of the two between the European and the African, mm-hmm. right? He said that the European was the most barbaric, mm-hmm. right? Now John Stedman, I'd have to say, was enlisted. So he's an Englishman who joined the Dutch army to head to Suriname specifically to hunt down the Maroons or the Bush Negroes. So he was there to do a job. He was there to either catch or kill the rebellious quote-unquote Negroes. Mm -hmm. And even then, within that, and him uh, taking upon this role voluntarily, he still saw that the Europeans were more barbaric. Mm -hmm. Right? So one of the things that I love... It's the personal stories with history. I love not just generalization of, of events, but I love to know about personal stories of our people. And there are three men who are instrumental during this era of resistance and rebellion in Suriname 
and there are three Maroon Chiefs because there were many Maroon Chiefs because they were there were over two thousand Maroons at the time or more, mm-hmm. right? Which is a lot mm-hmm. back in them days. It is actually quite a lot, and they wreaked hell and havoc. Okay, and the three men are called Baron, Bonnie, and Jolique. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, these things were going to come up. So before I get into that, I'm just going to talk about the dynamics in Suriname and also across the Caribbean when it came to ensuring that slavery lasted as long as it did. Most of us were like, yo, if it was me back in the day, put me in a time machine, go back, you slit in massive throat, killing everybody and all of that kind of thing. We like to believe that we would that we would have done that, right? But... Let's take into consideration. I okay? think people also forget that these things don't happen straight away. Mm-hmm. It's always a gradual process. So if you look at the history of African slavery or colonialism, initially they they went there and started trading with Africans. Mm-hmm. You know, and over the time, they it's almost like they see your weakness. Yeah, and then they strike. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it it was. I mean, when you look at African slavery in itself, it was just uh, is opportunity because yes, they saw it's, that it's, there was a lot of infighting, and they're like, "Yo, yep, yeah. it's it's always opportunity." So, can we help you? Can we help you? Mm-hmm. Oh, you want to fight those people over there? Guess what? Got some guns. For I you. got you. You know, uh, hey, just pull this trigger and it pull. You don't need to throw no swords. Don't need to throw no spears. Just yep. from a distance. Yeah. Yep. Simple, then, as. Yeah, simple as solve, solve your problem yeah and then it comes to hey we're looking for some men you got some men for us well we captured these men with that war we had with the fanties over there mm-hmm. so you can take them yeah. Like, yeah okay yeah and we'll then, give you some iron some and then they go they go and make these bloody metallic trinkets and come back and act as though that's currency and you've never seen anything like the it. manilas yeah. So you place the value on it yeah. and they're printing that shit cheap like it's copper coins. Oh yeah, it's like nothing, but also even carry shells were used as a means of exactly. for the most part, carry shells are not indigenous to Africa, but we associated with Africa. It's, in, course, it's incorporated I mean, yeah, on on the Ghana city we have a carry shell. Yeah, but it was you know, it was coins. currency. It was currency to buy yeah. enslaved people. So okay, so let's look at hierarchy. So it's not just when we look at slavery, we're always saying it's black versus white, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also the consideration of hierarchy. So within the plantation societies, they understood that Europeans understood that they were the minority. So how do we break up the majority? We create class systems. So they created class systems. So you are a field worker, you're the lowest of the low. You're a domestic worker, you get a little bit of little extra things. You are this slave driver, right? The slave driver is a man who's keeping everyone in check. I'm going to give you some extra planting. I'm going to give you maybe extra some extra bedding. I'm going to give you maybe, you know, a cask of rum, something of rum, you know, once a month. All of these small, because our ancestors lived in these states of such depravity, even the smallest mercy was seen as such a big thing. It amplified it, right? Mm -hmm. So the reasons why slavery lasted so long is because of the Black Rangers, which they call Redu Misu, in Suriname, or they call them the West India Corps. Like I said, Black Rangers, they have loads of names for them. It was basically enslaved Africans or even free black people 
who were um, enlisted with incentives, if it's monetary, if it's offers of freedom, if it's offers of books, to go out and hunt down the quote-unquote rebellious Negroes because they're popping off and we just need peace to continue our enslavement. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things is the Maroons, right? They, <laughs> they had no love for these black rangers, okay? Why would they? They're sellouts. Exactly, they're sellouts. And they treated the sellouts actually sometimes with less mercy than the white man itself. It was the ultimate betrayal. betrayal. Of course, so it should be. Absolute ultimate betrayal. So John Selman writes this, you know, because they kept going out, these Europeans and the black rangers kept going out into the forest in Suriname to hunt down the maroons and find their camps, right? Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> they say this. So with the rangers having crossed the swamp on the other side, embrace the opportunity of leaping with this black party over the palisades, sword in hand without opposition. A most terrible carnage at this time ensued. While several prisoners were made on both sides and the fortress of Buku was taken. So Buku was the name of one of the maroon, one of the, the big maroon strongholds. But Baron with the greatest number of rebels escaped into the woods, having first found means, however, to cut the throats of 10 of the 12 rangers who had lost their way in the marsh and whom he seized as he stuck fast in the swamp, cutting off the ears, nose and lips of one of them and left him alive in this condition to return to his friends, with whom, however, the miserable man soon expired. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even even within John Simmons' book, he talks about how the Maroons ambushed this squadron of Europeans, so the Dutch, alongside the Black Rangers, and they iced all the Rangers and said to the Europeans, go back to York because we know that y'all here being paid like this little money yeah. and y'all dying here anyway. We won't kill y'all. Go back to your yeah, master. Because they understand the dynamics, mm -hmm. you know, and it all comes, it's all you know just very simple psychology as always because mm -hmm. people do things when they're in a position of need right so their ability to even recruit those rangers is because they're in a position of need and they're offering them something better whether it's food money mm -hmm. you know property land whatever it is you have to be in a position where you feel as though you can't attain those things or you don't have those things or there's no way of you getting those things and some someone saying hey if you do this for me you look at why people work today mm -hmm. if people had a choice they wouldn't but if you're in position there's a what is his name i think his name is frederick hertzberg and he talks about motivational theory and if i said hey could you could you go to the market and buy this for me? Mm -hmm. You would be like, no, you go and do it yourself. I'm not going anywhere. But if you're in a position of need and I say, hey, go to the market and buy this for me, I'll incentivize you with 20 pounds. Absolutely. You will go, even if you didn't want to or feel like it, because mm -hmm. you need that 20 pounds. So creating those class systems was equally part and parcel of that. And even today, yeah, and they really tap into human behavior and human psychology because if you're seeing someone who is from your tribe or another tribe, mm -hmm. right? So automatically, you say, for example, I'm Ghan and I'm seeing other Igbos 
from Nigeria getting all the better roles or being in position of power, I'm going to have a certain animosity towards them, naturally. Yes. Right? And, and that's how you create the divide and then you're able to keep the system going because any form of togetherness your system crumbles yeah you because you keep the divide because there's a lot of every man to himself kind of vibe exactly and you know they they understood that yeah. so you know looking at in one of the very many expeditions that they did into the forest looking for the maroon camps because what they do they'd find the maroon camps set them on fire and because they used to have a lot of gardens so they'd grow planting they'd have their yam they grow their peanuts and that kind of stuff again they'd burn it because obviously they're growing food in the in the forest right so in one of the expeditions, they were there in the middle of the night. Imagine, right? Pitch black at night. They set up their hammocks. They kind of calling it off for the day. And, you know, they've been bitten and all the insects and stuff like that. And these white people not used to anything like that. So they're really suffering, okay? You can't survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See what happened to them in Vietnam. There, there, were, there were loads of them. In one of the books that I also have alongside is the, the Bonnie Maroon Wars in Suriname. And it says here, it's speaking about Stedman and talking about the survival rate of the white soldiers, in John Stedman's book, towards the end, when he's on his ship back, because he lives, of course, right? He says that only 100 out of the 1,200 soldiers who had come to Suriname embarked on a trip home. The rest had died in Suriname, most of them from exhaustion or illness, Stedman's information, however, is not altogether true as the total number of soldiers who had come to Suriname was 1,650 and not 1,200. And only 100 survived. Yes. Right? Some of which were not fit for service. Some of them had gone mad. Some of them were Welcome disabled. To the jungle. <laughs> you know, build for it. Go and stay, stay in your nice house and drink your tea and biscuits. Well... You know, it's it's quite, it's interesting because they don't, I think a lot of the time they don't think about the terrain, they don't think about the climate, they don't think about, you know, so when they come, they really struggle with the heat, they struggle with what to eat. It's, well. It's so, it's so interesting. It is very interesting. I mean, before we, I get into the story of John Stedman and him being in the bush and what happened between the rangers and the maroons is something that actually the reason why John Stedman survived actually is quite interesting especially in terms of recent revelations concerning celebrities and their uh, (laughs) their hygiene oh yes you know the people that don't bathe yes the people that don't bathe so yeah i don't understand this this, is seen videos of people saying oh i just put the soap on my face and you know it it just trickles down so i'm assuming it's washing the rest of my body yes that's for the ones who do bathe (sighs) not even how you bathe but the ones that do bathe but you know the thing is is that Obviously, if you look back into the 1700s, right? Mm-hmm. Then people were wearing all kind of stocking and long pants. And yeah, because it's in Europe, it's cold here. So you needed that stuff. Yeah, but why, it, you, why are you coming to Suriname and wearing the same thing? Hey, but no one told them. Yeah, so somebody had to tell them and somebody told John, <laughs> right? So John is like, yo, basically, he said, I now recourse the advice of an old Negro, Karamaka, said I. What methods do you take to preserve your health? And he said, I swim every day, twice or thrice, sir, in the river. This Masera, or master, 
not only serves for exercise where I cannot walk, but it keeps my skin clean and cool and my pores being open. I enjoy a free perspiration. Without this, by imperceptible filth, the pores are shut, the juices stagnate, and the disease must inevitably follow. And that's what he did. He decided to bathe every day. But you know, one of the things, if you look at Africa right now as a continent, yes, one of the things that plagues Africa in terms of diseases has to do with more to do with sanitation yes and cleanliness yes right or lack thereof of the facilities to maintain it exactly Mm -hmm. but besides that africans don't get sick Mm -hmm. a lot of the because of our and i believe it's because of our exposure to the elements Yes, you know, the immunity has the built, immunity up, to is built up to so much. So we're very, very resistant to stuff. I myself don't get sick. So, and neither do any of my family. So all the things associated with Africans that have disease, which is disease, mm-hmm. is associated with things to do with diet. Yes. You know, so the high sugar, high blood pressure hypertension diabetes cholesterol those sorts of things are the things which are kind of man-made in a sense but well, it's not I mean, that it's, it's not it's, it's europeans introduction to the of diet. course of course but, it, but what i'm saying is we actually have control over it which is very different to things that affect the white people absolutely you know? absolutely so we're going to jump back to what was happening so Back in the forest, okay? Mm-hmm. Insert sounds of crickets, mosquitoes and whatever buzzing about, okay? Mm-hmm. Depth. That will make you slap yourself. <laughs> <laughs> in the depth of the South American forest. Mm-hmm. And they're there. They're going to wait until, you know, the sun rises for them to go back out on their hunts. Because obviously the maroons have a better understanding of the forest, right? These Europeans don't. And one of the things I found, which was so stupid okay stupid mm-hmm. is like one of the biggest generals in Suriname at the time was adopting or using European ways of patrolling right so they patrolling through the forest and what they're doing they're drumming hut two three four hut two and they're drumming right so of course the maroons can hit it so it took him two years to figure out stop drumming okay but then again it depends on what kind of animals you have in there forest because if you have things like jaguars and leopards and stuff you don't want to be solo you need to let them know you're you're there so no, it's not about being solo you're there for whole you, you should have people patrolling from all angles or looking from all angles you know, for any potential threats but i'm sorry if you're out there to try and find people Incognito. Obviously, it's common sense. It's like it's, it's, it's like having a megaphone saying, "Hey, we're coming for y'all. We're looking for y'all." Like, well, I get, I get, <laughs> I get what you mean by that. Yes, but. because it's only when he stopped the drumming is when he was able to find more of the camps and to capture more people. Mm-hmm. But it was just they were doing some stupid shit. Okay. Well, yeah. It's, All right. It's, we keep doing stupid shit by keeping adopting Western cultures and replacing our culture with theirs. Yeah. Their assimilation. I don't think. I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, adopting some elements of other people's cultures. But it's when you replace. No, but what I'm talking about that that general who was doing it 
was a white man. He's a Dutchman coming. Oh, he's a Dutchman. Yes, he's a Dutchman going through the Surinamese forest, mm-hmm. doing his European I mean, march. Yeah, how is he gonna know any different? Yeah. He's, he's just—it's common sense, though. Well, anyway, we have a saying: common sense is not common to common people. Oh well. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what had happened is that so they are waiting for sunrise to come up, right? Mm-hmm. So what happened is in the dark of night. Insert the mosquitoes and cricket sound, okay? Right? And what had happened is that during this time, the Maroons found them. And he says here, John Stedman says, during this time, the most abusive dialogue was carried on between the rebels and the rangers. So basically, the Europeans there, right? So they had the black rangers and the Maroons. And they start warring in the forest. Just the two, the two groups, okay? Europeans kind of done the homer and just hide in the in the in the yeah, hedge right black, the black rangers are like the the, the bloodhounds exactly you know? exactly they are the bloodhounds so so it says that the most abusive dialogue was carried on indeed between the rebels and the rangers each party cursing and menacing the other at a very terrible rate the former reproached the rangers as poltroons and traitors to their countrymen. Yes. And when I first read that, I said, what the hell is a poltroon, right? Mm. Poltroon means a coward. So they called them cowards and traitors to their countrymen. And they challenged them the next day to single combat. They swore they only wished to lave their hands in the blood of such scoundrels who had been the principal agents in destroying their flourishing settlement. The rangers damned the rebels for the parcel of pitiful, sulking rascals whom they would fight one on two in the open field if they dared to show their ugly faces, swearing they had only deserted their masters because they were too lazy to work. See the indoctrination over there? Yep. Deserted their masters. Because you were too lazy to work. For someone to make you appreciate them as a master. That's some serious indoctrination. Yep. I thought it was extremely powerful. To to the extent that you are telling your fellow people, hey, listen to Massa. Like, no. And the Maroons, I agree with everything they said. You know? Yeah, you're you're traitors to your own countrymen. You're traitors to your own countrymen. Because, you know, they, the Europeans, have always had their ulterior motives. Always there to come and take your stuff whether it's gold and stuff i saw a video the other day it was some ashanti kings giving heaps of gold to who the queen the okay. queen had come to ghana when was that i don't know I that must have been some years ago i mean yes some queen years ain't going nowhere now yes some years ago and they're like mounds of gold being carried on people's heads mm-hmm. and given to the queen as gifts and I'm like, hey, <laughs> you're gonna get me in trouble. Let's not. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's just things like that, putting people on a pedestal and making them making yourselves feel as though they need to. You your validation needs to come through them. They have to give you the blessing, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, for you to. For you to deem yourself worthy of anything ties into the whole yeah christianity thing too 
Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's just talking about, oh, you, you're too lazy to work for massa i thought that was one of the most ridiculous things i'd ever read in my life it was like what the fuck are you telling me here not like yo i'm just doing this because i'm just trying to get my house don't call me lazy but this is interesting because when you talk about when i saw that it made me think about what we call a negma war in san lucia Mm. negma war means like you know a a runaway neg black mawon means to run away right and how we look at the negmawa to call someone a negmawa is an insult. Oh, you, you, where you come if you come looking somewhere disheveled or whatever, you're a negmawa, or if you're just not, what's the word, manicured or cultured, you are a negmawa. If you right. if you're someone who can't read, who, who come from countryside and kind of thing, yeah. you are a negmawa. So yeah. that's seen as a, it's a derogatory term. Not looking at the negmawa chose to not work for not to be unsafe but so guys we're gonna take a quick break with a word from our sponsors welcome to the relatable podcast a safe space for open and honest conversations created for black people this podcast explores how we relate to one another in our intimate connections friendships family and everything in between hosted by three caribbean women i am fiona a single mom i'm shaween a very near empty nester and i'm chantal a free-spirited monogamist new episodes drop every wednesday from june 9th and you can find us wherever you get your podcast fix relatable because a shared journey brings hope I wanted to get back to the story of Baron. Okay. Now, Baron's story is actually quite nuanced. And the story goes as this in accordance to Stedman's book. This Baron had formerly been a Negro slave of Mr. Dahlberg, a Swede. Yes, the Swedish were also slave owners and so were the Danish, who on account of his abilities had advanced him to the rank of a favorite and taught him how to read and write and bred him a mason. He had also been with his master in Holland and had been promised his manumission, his freedom, on his return to the colony. But Mr. Dalbo, breaking his word with the regard to his liberty and selling him to a Jew, Baron obstinately refused to work, in consequence of which he was publicly flawed under the gallows. This usage the Negro so violently resented that from the moment he vowed revenge against all Europeans without exception and fled to the woods there, putting himself at the head of the rebels, his name became dreadful, particularly to the former master Dalberg, as he solemnly swore that he would never die in peace until he had washed his hands in the tyrant's blood. Gangster. Is some gangster shit going on here in this book, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. So, you know, it's like... Baron did become one of the leaders of the Maroons and he really did do some gangster shit. Mm-hmm. He really, really did. I mean, one of the things that I'm going to talk about with Baron is an example of one of their raids. One of the generals in a letter had explained this about one of the raids by the Maroons on a plantation. It says here, this is to acquaint you that the rebels have burned three estates by your side the ruins of which are still smoking, and they have cut the throats of all the white inhabitants that fell in their way. As on their retreat, they must pass close by where your post said, be on your guard, I am in haste. So, you know, these these kind of letters are quite insightful about 
not just the gangster shit that the Marines were doing, but how much it made the Europeans very fearful. So that's some of the examples of some of the things that they did. You talk about how the rivers were washed with blood of the blood of Europeans and so on. One of the other leaders called Boni or Boni. I'm not too sure how you pronounce it. So with him is that he was of mixed heritage, but he was born in the bush. His mother was an African woman, an enslaved woman, and she became pregnant. She was the master's mistress. And I, I use that term very loosely because you know as we're talking about consent and all of these things under these circumstances but you know she became pregnant um, by the master and she ran away into the forest fully pregnant and gave birth to Bonnie and Bonnie was born with a fire in his heart he was a man who did not play when I'm researching the relationships between all the different maroon leaders is that they didn't always agree okay right. So there was at one point when things were becoming very peak with all the patrols coming into Suriname. And it was like, Brian was like, yo, man, I'm, I'm tired of doing all these raids and fighting all these white people. I want to go towards like French Guyana. Let's cross the river, go into another country. There's loads of forest and space, but let's just be here because I'm tired of fighting. Bonnie is like, hell no. <laughs> like, fuck all these white people gotta kill them all so he was extremely extremely thug okay mm-hmm. so he he had one of the largest maroon camps okay when we're talking maroon camps they had fortresses which had fortified like surrounded by five meter poles going all the way around so you couldn't just climb in like that you know they had like things like a flag it said the description was like a black and yellow flag with a lion a black and white lion painted on it. That was their flag. I would love to see what that flag looked like. But, you know, they were on some gangster shit. And, you know, some of the things that they used to do is that because Suriname was so marshy and had so much swampland, they'd wait for the Europeans and the rangers to get into the water and fire them in the water. That what? was one of their tricks. I mean, why not? Mm-hmm. Because that's when they're most vulnerable. They can't run. They can't go that's anywhere. That's what I mean. I'm like, why wouldn't you do that? That's your terrain. You, and it's it's interesting because for me the maroons were in tune with the terrain and and nature, mm-hmm. right? And it's a means of using nature against. So they probably had herbs or ointments that would be repellents for the insects. Yes, right. So the Europeans would not be able to <laughs> do that. You know, things like that. It's things like that that kind of enable you to win a war and the europeans knew that they had to recruit obviously the rangers they had to recruit their own people because they couldn't do it and it's funny how the rangers didn't see that as a sign of weakness well i mean the thing is they were incentivized that's what i mean so mm-hmm. they incentivize their incentivization meant that you know they were thinking they were being selfish yeah and not thinking that, hey, these people need us. The fact that they need us means that they can't, they're not as powerful as as we think they are. Exactly that. Right? Exactly you that. Know, I think I actually said, look at you, you're okay, I've been handling it. And they, they probably just laughed yeah. and then did the work for them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like you would, maybe you would go to, someone would go to Ghana, and be like, look, 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 look at this Obroni, look at this white person. Mm-hmm. And then they would help them. Right. As well. Right. You know, be like, 
my friend, my move, move, move. Only a holding. You don't have any I'll strength. Do it. I mean, the thing is, is you that it, um, Stedman did say that you know the Rangers did go with like so much courage and valor and vigor, yeah. like because they're like they're going headfirst and like they were real like on it. One of the things that I wanted to touch on is my favorite story. Okay. Okay. You have lots of favorites. I do have a lot of favorites, but you. Everything's your favorite. <laughs> This one is no, no, no. Jolica is one of the top. I don't know if you say it depends on the spelling, right? But it's Jolica, which means beautiful heart, right? Okay. Which is a very, very interesting description or name for an enslaved person. I've seen names of enslaved, and their name is Happy. Like I just, that, I mean, Nigerians love that stuff. Let's call it the, the which name are Happy the, Joy. Well, yeah, and Joy, a, a Happy, and, and, a and good my, luck. Good luck, yes. 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 My, yes. my friend's son's called Miracle. I'm like, Charlie, why? Well, because that's an African thing. I don't know. But the thing yeah. is, obviously, these people did not have a choice over their names. Mm. Huh? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, the fact is that, you know, white people were giving them, oh, happy aunt. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, one of the things, okay, so what happened is it, okay, Johnny Boy, John Stedman, okay, he's up there doing his thing in Suriname. And he falls in love with a mixed race woman called Joanna. Mm, she's nice fifteen. <laughs> yes, she's fifteen, and he becomes pretty much obsessed with her and works really hard to free her. But in the meantime, they're sleeping together and, and doing their thing, right? Dirty Inter- man. Huh? Dirty. Dirty. Yes, dirty man. But you know, as we know in the in the colonies, anything goes. So he was doing the same with fifteen-year-old Joanna, who he eventually does manumit. They do have a son together, but he does leave Suriname and leaves her in Suriname with the little boy. And unfortunately, that Joanna gets poisoned by someone a few years later. But yeah, so Johnny Boy goes back to Europe and continues, gets a wife and has kids and, you know, moves on. So, but when Johnny Boy was with Joanna, he met an enslaved man who was called Kojo. And what was interesting is Kojo was supposed to be Joanna's cousin. He was a stout man and he carried a silver band on his arm which said, get this, you ready? Are you ready for this? Hear me. True to the Europeans. What? (laughs) Yes, he wore a silver band on his arm that was engraved true to the Europeans. He could read and write. Well, it's not him that engraved it. Well, somebody, I don't know, I can't say. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying, whether he was aware of the meaning of it. That's a good question. Because, you know, if if he was aware of the meaning of it and he he wore it, then... mm. Well, I mean, the thing is, maybe someone, do you think that someone could have not told him? Eventually, eventually he would have found out. I can't guarantee that. I don't know. Mm. But it would be interesting to know whether he understood that or whether he still, he just saw it as something blingy and a gesture and, and something nice mm-hmm. that was gifted to him. Right? Well, these are the mysteries we'll never know. The mm-hmm. answer to. So this man, whose name was Kojo, had voluntarily fought against the rebels. Maybe that answer your question for you. Right? Before his companions, by the inhuman treatment of Mr. D.B. and his overseer, had been forced to join them. Holding a little girl called Tamara by the hand, he related to us this following remarkable story. This child's father, said he, is one whose name is Jolly Kerr, was the first captain of Baron's men, and, not without cause, was one of the fiercest rebels in the forest. 
as he has lately shown in the neighboring state of New Rosenbach, where your colonel now commands. On that estate, one Schultz, a Jew, was a manager at the time when the rebels suddenly appeared and took possession of the whole plantation. Having tied the hands of Schultz and plundered the house, they began feasting and dancing before they thought proper end to his miserable existence. In this deplorable situation, the victim lay, only waiting Baron's signal for death when his eyes chanced to catch Jolly Curls, and he addressed him with nearly the following words. Oh, Jolly Curl, now remember Mr. Schultz, who was once your deputy master. Remember the dainties I gave you from my own table when you were only a child. And my favorite, my darling, among so many others, remember this and now spare my life by your powerful intercession. <laughs> I think Jolly could probably give that laugh. <laughs> the very same way the reply of Jolly Cool was memorable. I remember it perfectly well. But you, O oh tyrant, recollect how you ravished my poor mother and flogged my father for coming to her assistance. Recollect that shameful act was perpetrated in my infant presence. Recollect this, then die by my hands and next be damned. Saying this, he severed his head from his body with a hatchet at one blow and having played at bowls, so bowling with his head, with it upon the beach, he next cut the skin with a knife from his back and spread it over one of the cannons to keep the priming dry. Right? So, that's Jolly Cool's story. Are you telling me that story is not gangster? Listen, I don't even know what to say. I mean, it's stories like that that make you, you know, because anytime you hear about slavery and history and black people history, there's always a, I don't know, so like a very sad feeling. But yes. hearing things like this, you know, yeah. They, they they tried right and it's it's for slavery to have lasted that long it's always our own people it is always our own people you know it's always a snitch and there it's is always, always a snitch but it's always because we're in a position of need but which you is know, why they always dangle the carrot but you, you know, know the thing is is that there is contradicting stories upon jolly Kerr. because okay. within this other book which is called the first bony maroon war part one it contradicts this story and says that it wasn't Jolly Kerr that killed the manager, Mr. Schultz, mm -hmm. but it was actually uh, Bonnie who had done it. But I'm sorry, I, I prefer I prefer Stedman's story. I want to hold on to I it. I mean, why would Stedman lie? Did, St did Stedman hear it from somewhere? Yeah, like he heard it from the man who did, who's had the European thing on, right, on his right, hand right, right? Yeah. but they're saying that the more reliable account is from the records of enslaved that had to testify in court yeah, well, about certain things and that several mm, people cor corroborated the same story that it was actually Bonnie who had done it no nah, I don't I don't really I don't know about that because you know when they take you to court and you have to switch up your stories and they force you to make the story match a certain narrative and nah yeah, I'm gonna hold on to Johnny Boy's story because you know what? It's it's it's, it's giving me it's giving me more joy. I'm it gives sorry. me more joy because you're like, it gives me more joy, but equally sadness because absolutely because it's a very tragic story in terms of his trauma as a yeah, child. Yeah, and these are the things that would not be written down in yeah, the court records exactly because 
we we never ask the why we always see oh this happened yes and no one thinks to the very foundation of it but then i look at us as black people today and obviously there is a lack of knowledge in terms of the history and these types of stories which people don't know about right which i feel are very empowering to us as a people and then you look at i look at our people these days and we just seem so lost you know well, to, mean, to a certain extent in terms of upholding yes is improving yes we're loving ourselves more yes we're finding out more about yourselves and being confident in who we are and accepting who we are and all those things but it's just seen equally you see a lot of people who are very far from that yeah Absolutely. I mean, self-love and developing a, a love of community when, you know, we have been surrounded by so many tactics sort of, trauma, of, yeah. of, separation yeah, of separation as well. separation and dividing, yeah. It's Absolutely. Con- it's constant. It's the evolution of it is what's scary because now it's not even a case of breaking someone at the wheel to make people scared. It's just psychological. It is psychological. Simple. But I mean, psychology, you know, comes here as well because at one point, you know, Bonnie, even with Bonnie, who was like, you know, Bon Oliol at one point, that's why him and Baron, you know, had some arguments at some point. You know, he was like, yo, okay, let me just do a peace treaty, right? And because Bonnie was doing a lot of very, in their minds, very brutal things. So, for example, you'd find, you know, in Stedman's account and also in this Bonnie Maroon's book, is that they talk about, you know, going through the forest and finding the heads of white men on spikes, like lined up, 10, 12 of them lined up on spikes and stuff. And that's the, that's the work of Bonnie. But, you know, Bonnie was trying to do some peace treaties and in the end, the Europeans decided not to because they caught the Black Rangers because they had rec- recruited, you know, several hundred black rangers enslaved men to go into the bush to fight on their behalf so you know that mm-hmm. separation was happening even in the, the face of offerings of a peace treaty you know because mm-hmm. they're like you know what we got the people to do the dirty work for you yeah of course so guys we're going to take a quick break and we're going to be introducing some music from Suriname today brought in by one of the supporters from Noya Caribbean to check out this wonderful piece of Surinamese music back guys so we're going to be closing off this episode and i know it's i've only like literally scraped the top because we haven't even spoken about 
what happens in the end and everything that goes on with the legacy of Suriname and the Surinamese Maroons. But, you know, in the end, what had happened in the end is that Bonnie was betrayed by another Maroon leader who was under pressure by one of the European uh, colonels and he was murdered in the end. But he did live to a good age. He lived in, up until his 60s, which is quite rare because normally you'd find that any rebel chiefs or rebels on the whole would not survive past their 30s because, you know, it was just a level of brutality that happened when you had these hunts. So Bonnie did survive in the forest for a very long time and he did have grown children and so on, but he was betrayed by another Maroon chief under the pressure of Europe. Um, Jolico was also killed in a fight during an ambush in the forest and Baron also, when they do raids, right, when they do raids in the plantations, what we have to be aware of is there was a lot of resistance from the enslaved on the plantations. A lot of them did not want to go and live in the bush with the Maroons. They had a certain level of, in their in their mind, comfort. Of so course. they saw the Maroons, a lot of enslaved saw the Maroons as pests. They're like, yo, I'm not going with you in the bush, all right? There was even something I was reading in the book. It's talking about they had taken some women with babies to come with them into the forest and the women... They were telling that the Maroons were telling the women to leave the children behind. And the women are crying. They're like, hell no, we're not doing that. And, you know, these are the tough things. It's not mm-hmm. that every side, of course, we want to support the black side, right? But there's a lot of things within that that we may not necessarily agree with, right? Mm-hmm. In the end, Bonnie said, all right, bring your children, but, you know, you all need to keep up. But it's that, once again, the whole survival instinct thing. Mm-hmm. So what had happened is that they had brought about 11 rangers to the Maroon camp and they say, yo, what you're saying? You're, you're going to join us or what? Mm-hmm. Right? And they were like, nah, you need to kill us. You, we we rather die than join y'all. And I thought that was so interesting. What happened is that the Maroons went to their temple and then they prayed and they said, please forgive us for breaking our oath because they at one point had made an oath not to kill any of their own. But needs must. Needs must. And in the end, they ended up um, you know, executing all of them. And just these stories, it just shows just how intricate, nuanced, difficult, empowering, demotivating and everything. But I think definitely this needs a part two, maybe a part three, just about the Surinamers because their community is now more than 20,000 mm-hmm. um, and it is under threat of government. But we can get into that in subsequent episodes. But did you have any final thoughts, Nii, on, you know, just touching on these stories of the Maroons in Suriname? I think it's very it's very interesting to see that, you know, even within with, between the Maroon chiefs, at some point they sort of, you know, one of them's like, hey, I'm thinking about just just moving. I'm tired of fighting, you know, and it just goes to show how, how draining it is, like, to, to constantly be at war and it's taking its toll. And then the other one betrays the other one because at some point it, it, it kind of shows... They always push to see how far you can go. Yeah. You know, um, with Europe, Europe can always send more people. Yes. Right? Yes. But it's like with you, you're not reproducing as <laughs> at a rate. They're not waiting till your children are 18. Yeah. They're, they're literally chipping away, right? Yep. Till you yep. get to that point where you're like, oh, okay, we give up. Yeah. You know, oh, and, and it's, 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 very, it's very sad, but it's very empowering because... 
what they were essentially fighting for was just freedom. Simple. Simple, that's it. That's all. I just want to be my man doing my thing. You have no... It's that in the Europeans are like, yo, but we own you. Like, what? Exactly. I, I, I can't wrap my head around that. The basic, the basic human the rights basic, of it all. The yep. basic human rights for you to tell me you own me. Yes. To, you know, it's like... Or I, or I can tell you and your kids kid to, to somebody to, else. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, how? Yeah. Like, where yep. did that... Where did that come from? That would be like a whole 27 episodes of a podcast. So, folks, we're going to leave it here. Thank you guys so much for listening and look out for part two or three as we talk more about, you know, Mm -hmm. the Maroon stories. Definitely Suriname. Google it. Just get some stories. It is gangsta. Mm -hmm. Okay. And thank you guys so much for listening. And we'll catch you on the other side. love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 